0: Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more, more meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello. Happy Sunday. How's it going? This is episode 75 and I'm Danielle Delamar. Thank you for joining today. Good to have you. August 8th, we are walking closer and closer into the semester, Um, fall semester no less, which seems to be a lot busier than spring, right? <laughs> so, especially coming out of a pandemic. Oh my god, especially coming out of a pandemic. Um, I think this episode is actually really timely because of that. Um, I am talking to Dr. Brandy Simula today, and Brandy talks a whole lot about the pandemic, about the burnout that set in during the pandemic and about how that burnout is still very much with many of us, even as things start to ease up a little bit, even as we get back to some in-person classes and in-person meetings and in-person events, the pandemic hasn't left us. And she's really clear about that. And she talks a lot about self-care and rest and having a, an accountability group so that you can be held accountable to yourself and caring for yourself during this time. One of my favorite things that Brandy talks about in this episode is about being intentional about what you give 100% of your effort to. She says, you know, given 70% to something that is not as important to you is totally okay and you can still show up and get the thing done but you're not burning yourself out, you're not overworking, you're not overtaxed. And we also had a little bit of a conversation about how imposter syndrome creates a situation where we over deliver and as a result we don't take care of ourselves. And Brandy is just so honest about being a work in progress herself. She talks about how she is getting better at not overworking. And she talks about how so many of the decisions we make in order to live a life that's fulfilling and satisfying and where we feel whole and we feel like we're fully living is really about checking in with ourselves. On a moment to moment basis, noticing how we're feeling, noticing how we're doing, and responding to that, but also noticing what we want to do with our lives. And she talks about having a personal and a professional mission and designing your life in such a way that your personal and professional missions guide what you put effort into and what you don't put effort into. Such a great conversation. Here is my interview with Brandy now. So glad you're joining the conversation today. I'm talking to Dr. Brandy L. Simula, professional developer and board certified career professional and life design coach who works with graduate students, postdocs, faculty, and higher education leaders. Brandy, thank you so, so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk today. I am too, and I have to say, it wasn't until I discovered your article on personal and professional flourishing in Inside Higher Ed uh, that I even really knew you or knew much about what you did, and I just looked at your um, website today, and I'm realizing you do, like, basically everything I do, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm really (laughs) excited. We have a lot of similarities. Yeah, absolutely. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Uh, you know, life in the pandemic phase and that is real, but you know, all things all things considered, doing okay.
0: <laughs> yes. And so this has been like a thing that has come up in your articles that I've read. And it's also um, something that came up in our conversation before we started the recording, Um, just the pandemic and how hard it's been for so many of us. And I know in one of your articles, you talk about burnout um, and other stuff too, but um, burnout is resonating with me um, because in episode 73, which I just released not too long ago, uh, I talked to Ozgun, about burnout, um, and so that's kind of um, with me right now. Uh, so, let's talk about burnout and the pandemic for a second.
1: Yeah. So for myself, absolutely, I am aware that I am personally highly burnt out, and that that has been going on for a long time.
0: Um, wow.
1: And a lot of the people that I coach and work with, so at Georgia Tech, I co-facilitate with the fantastic Rebecca Popruark, and I facilitate women faculty burnout support group, where we see a lot of faculty who are experiencing pretty high degrees of burnout, seeing a lot with graduate students. I think, you know, what we know about burnout is that it was prevalent across higher ed before the pandemic. So the pandemic Mm -hmm. has not sort of newly created burnout, but has really exacerbated pre-existing burnout and, you know, led people who maybe weren't experiencing it before to start experiencing it um, now. And I think that is a really important piece. Um, Kate Willink and I actually just had a piece that came out this morning, I think an hour or two ago, <laughs> inside higher ed, thinking about what faculty need at this point, sort of moving, not necessarily out of or beyond, it, right? It's not like the pandemic is suddenly over, especially, you know, at the moment we're in with the resurgence of the Delta variant, etc. But also, even as we move out of the the sort of acute phase of the pandemic that doesn't magically end burnout. And I think that's a really important part of the conversation.
0: And how are you making that transition that you sort of talk about?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and for me, I, it's challenging. And I think it's important to be transparent about that. And, you know, a lot of people are feeling excited about opportunities to reconnect in person, and that's very real. And I'm experiencing some of that myself. But also i've personally lost people in the pandemic um and you know i in the middle of the pandemic i left the institution that i had been at since i was 22 and moved to a a new institution and a new position and it has been a year of sea change i lost a member of my family uh 10 days before lockdown last march um and i you know i am trying to give myself space to exist as a human who has undergone just huge sea changes in both my personal and professional life um mm. and the thing that has been really helpful for me is uh my yoga studio that is a uh, woman of color owned has been what i see as sort of moral leadership in the context of the pandemic moved fully online has been doing free meditations for anyone who needs support um and they're holding space for people to sort of re-engage with their practice. re-engage, like exist in our bodies. Move back into physical spaces in ways where I try and really commit to showing up uh, to practice. And I'm still doing most of my practice from my home office, bedroom, kitchen. You know, four walls that I live in. It's now also yoga <laughs> studio and dog grooming salon. Mm-hmm. And all of the things. Mm-hmm. But that piece of really showing up in spaces where. You know, I mean, teachers are encouraging us to show up how we really are and to just exist in our bodies with whatever is happening. That piece is, I think, really vital for me.
0: So one of my sort of saving graces has been <laughs> to just give myself space to watch Netflix. Like when I'm, but honestly, it has been perhaps the best thing I have discovered over the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, eh, you know, like, I just have to show up for everything and do it all and make it all work. And, um, later I found Netflix. (laughs) 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 I feel so much better. Like, I am not kidding you. I almost feel as good after watching a little bit and, and I not even has, it doesn't even have to be that long, five minutes, 30 minutes. Um, and I feel almost as good as I do after I've meditated. I just want to lay around and focus on something that's not, that's not forcing me to do something extra. Um, so I, I don't know. Would you speak to that? Um, what do you think when I say all of that? <laughs> because I really feel like sometimes you have to really have it together to even meditate Yeah. or to do yoga.
1: Yeah, and I was
0: actually thinking when I
1: said the yoga, like, please don't let me be that person who's like, I do yoga and meditate and drink water. Like, that's not the situation. Like, (laughs) I'm laying on my mat, like, in my apartment, and sometimes I'm not even doing yoga. I'm just laying there listening to someone say, whatever you're doing right now is enough. And, like, Mm. I need that piece. And, you know, some days I'm doing the yoga, but, like, I'm doing a lot of, like, 60-minute child's pose. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you know, the Netflix piece, I think, me too, and I'll I'll say, you know, actually, this year has been really challenging because I'm spending a lot of time watching shows in a way that I never have at any point in my life, where, like, Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon, I'm out of gas, and I, I feel myself just... I recognize that i'm beating myself up about it like i have this narrative in my head of like oh i do absolutely nothing except lay on the couch for hours and watch netflix and i'm totally unproductive and what am i contributing and you know like i'm working 70 hours a week and then crashing Mm -hmm. for four or five hours on sundays which does not mean that i'm just Mm -hmm. a couch potato but i think you know and i i think a lot for myself and also for my work with the people i support through my coaching practice in higher ed there is this narrative of you know, needing to be constantly productive. And also this, this hierarchy of like, you know, like certainly yoga and meditation are better than Netflix and whatever. And that is not helpful, right? What's helpful is what helps you rest. And I, I just feel really strongly that there is no hierarchy of that. Like yoga is not inherently better than binging whatever your favorite show is on Netflix or taking a nap or, whatever the thing is, like the hierarchy of self-care are the things that help you feel refreshed and whatever those things are, are at the top of the hierarchy.
0: Yes, I uh, honestly, I could not agree more. Whatever <laughs> helps you rest. So let's talk about the things that help you rest. Um, uh, okay, so we got a little Netflix, we got a little yoga. Um, what are some other things that you're seeing maybe in your faculty burnout support group um, or just in your life personally, that is helping you to rest.
1: Yeah. So I've heard from a lot of people who are doing things like trying to be intentional about reconnecting about spending some time outside because we have been so many of us so cooped up in the context of the pandemic. So, you know, people going on walks, people doing gardening. And I, I think a lot of those things, you know, especially as people in academic and adjacent spaces who, so much of our time in our lives is, you know, in our head doing intellectual work and those pieces of like, I I was talking with someone last week who was describing, you know, I went outside and I repotted a bunch of plants. And at the end of, you know, like my hands were all dirty. And I could also see the work that I had done. And Mm. that piece, I think, is, is so helpful for a lot of us where we have, you know, opportunities to see the more immediate results of our work in a way that sort of the nature of teaching and research and the kinds of service projects many of us work on we don't see for for long periods of time and and having points you know I, I don't want to say like doing dishes is self-care but if it is for you of course it is but like those moments of like I see that I started something it's finished it's done here's the results like those mm-hmm. those pieces can be really
0: helpful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um And one of the things I always like to come back to is saying to myself, okay, okay, like, right, I'm starting to feel icky in whatever way, noticing that and saying, okay, what does your mind, body, and spirit need? Um, And I can often, it's so funny because I would have in the past never identified the, what does your spirit need? And now I can, I can be like, you know, my spirit really just needs to connect to somebody right now. Mm -hmm. And I will text a few friends um, and then, you know, just sort of joke back and forth via text. Another thing I would say is that it's okay to even slack in your rest, right? If you're like, I need to go outside. (laughs) And then you end up just lying on the grass instead of like going for the walk you planned on because that would be the most productive way that's okay um like we think we need to rest in a in the right way um and we can rest in whatever way our body our mind and our spirit want in that moment um so yeah i don't know i'm thinking about that uh do you have anything to say to that
1: i do and i actually said i'm <laughs> thinking about this yoga piece and i'm I'm thinking about it because i i just finished a six-week summer restorative uh yoga series with my teacher megan Nair, who says in our practices she always invites us to do less. Like, can you stop giving? Can you stop over efforting? Can mm. you stop giving 100%? Can you make this a space where you give less? Can you do this at 80% and that be okay? And, and, mm. you know, like, can you drop a knee in this pose and know that, like, your relationship with your sister won't be any worse or better if you drop a knee <laughs> in this lunge uh-huh. if you need to? And that, that constant invitation to listen to, what do I need right now instead of what I should be doing? And that those practices have helped me take that framework out of just yoga into the rest of my work and be more intentional about not everything needs to be done at a hundred percent. A lot of things, 70% is fine. And really mm. to be intentional about where am I going to give a hundred percent And where am I going to give less? And that will still be enough, but it will let me give a hundred percent in the spaces that I really want to, because a hundred percent of effort, a hundred percent of the time is is not sustainable for anything.
0: Talk about that a little bit. How do we decide what we give 100% to?
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's really challenging and I want to be transparent. Like I'm saying that and it's a work in progress for me. I'm still like, doing the 100% 100% of the time, most of the time. But now I feel like at least I'm aware that that's happening. And I sometimes can catch myself and step back and say, this is fine at 95%. Like I could spend two more hours on this paragraph, and this paragraph would be out of the world. But I'm 95% is fine. This is an excellent paragraph. Mm-hmm. It just does yeah. it. And you know, I think for for all of us, my, my sense is really that you know, where we need to give 100% is a very individual set of decisions. And I've been coming back to over the, the last year, especially, you know, not just related to the pandemic, but to a lot of the personal loss that I've experienced in the last 18 months, pandemic related and otherwise, and really leaning into what are my values? sort of that, what am I doing with my life? Not necessarily in the existential crisis way, but, you know, sort of. (laughs) And that that sense of, you know, what is my personal and professional mission? And really trying to use that to make decisions about things that directly support what I see as my most meaningful work are spaces where I want to be giving 100%. And things Mm. that I'm doing that, are not closely related that to that that I, for example, have to do for my full-time job or that I'm, I'm doing in other ways where I feel like either I have to be doing this or I need to be doing it, but it's not really centrally tied to what I see as my life's purpose and meaning, then those are spaces where I'm going to really take a step back and say, maybe 80% is okay here. And, and some of it too, I think, is, is taking that step back and saying, should I be doing this at all? Like, is it Mm -hmm. okay, but also is, is this something that, and you know, for me, I feel like if it drops much below 80%, it's an, it's an invitation for me to really consider whether this is something that I want to be spending my time and energy on.
0: Wow. Okay. I love that. And so I have a suspicion based on what I've read of yours that your personal professional mission has to do with creating safe spaces for others. Um, Tell me where I'm wrong. Add to that, whatever.
1: Yeah. I think that is really important to me. And I've sort of, I feel like been circling back to that and moving away from it and circling back over the, the course of my whole life. And I think for me creating spaces where people can show up, as full humans, however they are, and connect with other people who are doing that as well is is really important. And I, you know, I think that work is, is hard in higher ed, because in so many of our spaces, our spaces are designed to be competitive, to be spaces where people show up and are expected to be experts in a variety of different ways, to be sort of on top of their game all the time. And, you know, certainly I think it's useful for people to show up and be able to be experts and et cetera. But I also think it's useful to think about how do we stop drawing this, what seems sometimes like a binary between being an expert or being a professional and also being a real human.
0: And will you talk about how you have reconciled that um, in your life in various, at various times. So if you have an example, um, when you felt like you had to be, you know, on top of it and ready to go and show how, show your expertise, um, and it hurt you, <laughs> um, and you had to find a better way, a, a different way, just to give people a some, some sense of what it is we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, and I, I think in many ways that has been sort of the story of my career. You know, I was a first generation student. I felt like I never really belonged for a long time. Uh, when I went to Emory for graduate school, you know, that was a very elite, wealthy space where, you know, I I did not fit. I did not know the norms. I was making weird and embarrassing mistakes all the time and sort of just terrified all the time. Not Not around academic expertise things, but like you know, I didn't know the forks, you know, at the, mm-hmm. <laughs> at the welcoming mm-hmm. graduate students to dinner. And, you know, for me, it's been this process first in teaching. And then, you know, now I do a lot of public speaking and workshops. And, and you know, I when I started teaching, I had the sense that I really needed to show up and, and be the expert, you know, it was that sort of sage on the stage model of, you know, I would know everything about everything we were reading and every potential um, you know question that my students could have. And I, I did I did that very well. Like I read everything. I <laughs> I used to do like 27 pages of single space lecture notes for every class, like just super over preparing. And then in my first set of course evaluations, they were quite negative because my students perceived me to be cold, unapproachable, uninterested in their learning. Um, and that was really helpful, but really challenging feedback for me, because what I wanted to do was to create a space for my students to show up and be curious and exist without feeling a lot of pressure. And what I had done was essentially the opposite of that. Um, and that really made me take a step back and think about how do I show up in a way where I show up as not a perfect person with all the answers and how can I model that for my students. And now when I'm giving workshops and speaking, etc., too, I think that's an important piece. And I really just try and lean into showing up however I am in the moment. I mean, I'm not gonna show up and say, like, I've had the worst day ever, and I'm just gonna cry instead of giving this workshop, but you know, showing up and if I'm having a really challenging time, just acknowledging that and, and saying, you know, and I know there are other folks who are also you know, like taking care of sick family members and the car didn't start this morning and we're we're all doing our work in the context of lives where things are going wrong all the time. Right. Often right, too. But like cars break down and the HVAC went out and, you know, like your your email went out at the worst possible moment. And that, that's the context that we live in. And pretending like that's not true, I think, makes it harder rather than easier.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, what you're saying is resonating with me so much. I'm thinking about Brene Brown's like um, uh, belong to yourself first. Mm-hmm. It, and if you can belong to yourself first, you can belong to other people. Um, and that, that's how I'm hearing what you're saying, right? You go into your classroom and you acknowledge that you are a real human being with real human struggles. Um, and when you acknowledge that, your your students then can um, you can belong to them more um, than you would as as sort of the expert. But what's really hard is when you are a first gen student. I can relate completely because I was that as well. Yeah. And you just are working so so hard to fit in so so hard to show that you can do it just like everybody else can do it um and so you always sort of fall back or i certainly did always fell into this i have to be an expert i have to show people i know what i'm doing i have to over prepare because i am not like them i don't just show up and and do it all right. Like, I have to really work to do it all right. Um, and so it's this constant, like self-criticism constant, like you got to go back and redo that. You messed up again. Um, and so I'm wondering, can you speak to that, um, that sort of inner dialogue? Like I don't fit in, I've got to find a way to fit in versus, um, I am human and it's okay for me to show up as human. Um, uh, yeah, whatever you have to say around that. Yeah, so I'll say
1: two things and let me just name them in case I forget once I get started. The first is around how this shows up in my writing and the second that I want to say is around uh, creating a, a sort of intentional bubble for yourself. And I'll say, you know, this the, the sense of I'm never enough, I have to always be proving myself, et cetera. Um, shows up in my writing in some weird ways that I have become aware of and now can edit my writing for. But like, I oversight all the time, like not every sentence needs ten <laughs> ten 10 oh, yeah. citations at the end. Um,
0: I can relate. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, you know, I, I think being aware of it's hard to be aware of the ways it shows up because we often feel like the ways it shows up are the ways that we actually don't know enough or are not enough rather than this is a way that imposter syndrome is showing up. And I think developing that self-awareness is very hard and very helpful. Um, But the the other thing, and this has been so important for me, I started doing it in graduate school and have carried this practice throughout my career is developing the community of people who share my background and share my values or have similar values or commitments and I started you know I, st- I have this sort of accountability and support group and I have several of them in, in various circles of my life and across a series of different connections but, but but a group of folks who meet up once a month and just talk about how things are going share goals setbacks etc and the piece that's really vital for that is these are groups that i create intentionally with people who i know share my values and will help hold me accountable for the things i want to be accountable for recognizing that those are not always in alignment with the ways i get held accountable in my full-time position for example and that there are sometimes a gap between what institutions expect of us and what we want to do. And that piece of I'm connecting with other first-gen folks, other queer folks, other folks who are trying to work on being better anti-racist allies, and that we hold each other accountable for those things. And also for being good to ourselves. And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, a couple of years ago, I put together a self-care accountability group with some folks who are in higher ed and and, in various kinds of ways who wanted to be more intentional about self-care. And our accountability was, you know, not for writing or whatever. It was literally just for self-care. And I remember someone coming to that group and saying, you know, I I keep saying I'm going to take, I'm just going to take a bubble bath for like 30 minutes sometime. And they came back to the group the next month and said, I tried to take a bubble bath but the drain was broken and then I had to blah, blah, blah. And just all of these ways where it is actually very difficult, I think mm-hmm. to hold ourselves accountable for self-care and to prioritize that. A, when we have all of these internal messages about we're not doing enough, but also be in context where we're working in situations where the expectations of us are increasing and to push back against that and and for me being in community with other people who are trying to do that work of pushing back against expectations that we are available all the time that we don't take breaks etc is is just so helpful because i know for myself i can't do that on my own i i need the support of the communities that i'm in um, who are doing this intentional work of helping each other resist that sort of constant overwork
0: I could not agree more. And it wasn't until I realized other people could actually help me and support me (laughs) (laughs) that I started to grow. Um, But it took a really long time because I thought I was in it alone. Nobody around me was, was interested or at least not communicating interest in this stuff. And so I just thought it was my thing that I had to do by myself and it was hard and um it felt defeating and when I found other people who were doing it finally uh, that's when I really started gaining momentum so do you have any like advice for people about how to find their people
1: uh yes um I'm I'm always just looking at spaces where, and I, this sounds like it's so negative. <laughs> it's not, but you know, when I'm in a space where somebody comes into a space and says like, "I'm having a really terrible day," I'm like, "Oh, this is a person who's showing up in an authentic way." <laughs> so I'm not mm-hmm. saying only look for people who are having terrible days, but you know, that, <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, someone who's uh, auto away email said, "I'm taking a real vacation." Uh, if you're pinging me constantly, please consider whether, whether this is more important than, uh, playing with my child in the sunshine. (laughs) And I was like, yes, okay. This is, this is one of my people. (laughs) And, and, you know, I think, you know, thinking about what your values are and just sort of, I, I feel like I constantly have this little antenna out, like subconsciously, like looking for people who share those values. Um. And finding them in in unexpected ways and in unexpected spaces. And I think one of the things that has been most important for me is when I started thinking about, you know, when I was in grad school, I was reading, like, you should have a support group or whatever. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And I thought it should just be like everyone in my cohort, we should just all be working together. And certainly there there are spaces that are helpful for that. But, you know, of course, not everyone in your cohort or in your department or whatever the case may be shares your Values or whatever, but I really thought it had to be people in my discipline or like now in my same career path and like it's not that at all. Like I'm a social scientist and I have people from from STEM fields in my current groups. I have people who are not in higher ed, but in adjacent spaces and sort of shifting gears from thinking about who's doing similar work to me to who is trying to exist as a human in a similar way that I am in an institutional setting that's similar enough to mine that we are navigating similar opportunities and challenges has been really helpful.
0: You've said to me, um, at least in the podcast notes, that you are willing to talk more openly about your sort of career pivot that you made. Yeah. Um, And I wonder how much of that big career pivot had to do with finding the right people so first tell us a little bit about the career pivot and then second tell us about the people part <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so i um and i'll just say straight up the answer is none at all i had no mm. support during that time because i was really ashamed and i and and this is on me not the people in my supportive communities and i, I want to be really clear about that but i i had this i had the narrative that i think a lot of of graduate students have, that you know, if I stepped away from the faculty path, I was a failure and I was really ashamed of doing that. And I withdrew from, like, I didn't talk to anyone about Mm. any of that. Um, and it was terrible. Um, it was terrible. Yeah. So I, you know, when I was going through grad school, I, I think like many of us, um, you know, was only thinking about, it. it never occurred to me to do anything other than, um, a faculty career and i i entered graduate school in a top ranked program in my field before the 2008 recession where you know certainly it was never like a tenure track job was guaranteed but it was generally the case that if you went through a top-ranked program and did the things that you were quote unquote supposed to do that you know you you had you had a decent chance <laughs> at least of getting mm-hmm. a tenure track job and and that was the expectation and i just i I never really thought about doing anything else. Um, I got to the end. This is like one of my, I try really not to have life regrets because a, there's nothing we can do about it. And B, if it had gone a different way, we don't know what the outcome of that would have been. So it could have been great in some ways and terrible in other ways. And we really don't know. So, (laughs) but that being said, I, I got to the end of my PhD program. I, I had, you know, been on the job market for tenure track positions that whole year while I was working three jobs, writing my entire dissertation of all the things I was, that was not mm-hmm. a fun year. Um, and I had had, I can't remember, I was thinking about this, I can't remember if I had had one or two, campus. I had had a series of interviews and, and made it to the campus visit stage of either one or two positions and not gotten any. Um, mm. And so right, you know, I, was finishing my dissertation it was graduation and I was not celebrating I was like thinking am I going to I have no job am I gonna have to live in a homeless shelter I was like you know I had all my books from graduate school and I over the course of that summer kept just going to a book donation I just have this vivid memory of like taking my books taking my whole library like 10 books at a time because it was so unbearable to part with them but it was like I can't even pay to store my books So Mm. I I just have to, so I would just go like once a week to this book depository donation box and dump in 10 books at a time. And it just felt like I was literally getting rid of my whole life. So I I didn't have, I I did not have any employment lined up and I, so I was not celebrating finishing. I was terrified. I have no work lined up. I couldn't get it. Not only not a tenure track job, like I did not have anything. Um, Mm. And I ended up finding a part-time tutoring job. I was doing like alphabet flashcards with kindergartners. And when they wouldn't show up, I had to clock out and sit in my car outside the tutoring center. Cause I couldn't drive back and forth from home before the next thing. It was just terrible. I remember just sitting in my car, like crying between yeah. these sessions of doing kindergarten flashcards, which is work that I had done as a high school student. And I'm like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm massively in student loan debt. I have spent, you know, my this past decade of my life getting my PhD. I'm making like $13 an hour, random hours a week, I have no job prospects. And I was just so ashamed that they just like basically dropped out of my life. You know, because Mm. people were like, oh, so what are you doing next? You know, where are you, you know, like, where'd you get a job? And I, nothing. And I couldn't say like, oh, I'm, doing kindergarten flashcards for 10 hours a week, and trying to find someone whose couch I can live on, like, mm. so I missed mm. this whole period of celebrating, finishing my PhD, um, and, you know, it turned out, you know, I ended up getting a visiting faculty appointment, and it was okay, but that whole period of finishing my PhD, and I, I did not celebrate, that was not a celebratory period, that was actually one of hardest and loneliest periods um, of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And not because people didn't try and support me, people were trying to show up and support me. And I I was just so ashamed that I just basically stopped talking to anyone who had anything to do with higher ed or had known me in any academic or professional spaces. Like I was talking to my family um, some, but that was basically it. So I got a visiting faculty appointment. I had that for a couple of years. not like a multi-year period, but you know, where every year you have no idea (laughs) if you're gonna get the job again. So I was, you know, and I was constantly on the job market. I had a couple of other, um, I had a couple of interviews and I think there was just a point at which it became pretty clear to me that I was not going to be successful on the tenure track market um, or any other, you know, I was applying broadly at liberal arts colleges, for non-tenured positions and I had a tenure track interview at an R1 Uh, and I just remember being out there it it was in somewhere in the midwest that I did not want to live near no one um, not a life that I wanted to live as a queer person Um, but you know you you want the tenure track job and at the R1 and etc so I was out there and there had been a, a really bad snowstorm and they had called me and said, like, could you come out early? We got you on a flight. Can you get to your airport? You know, in the next hour. I was supposed to go like two days later. I and mean, i was like mad dash scrambling, like throwing a suit in a suitcase and I hadn't been wow. job talk. So I was on this flight, like on a red eye flight, and trying to get in before a blizzard and trying to finish my job talk on the plane and then I got it so I hadn't slept and it was like three AM in this hotel looking out at a blizzard and I was ironing my suit and trying to practice my job talk. And I just was like, this, I don't, this is not, I don't want to do this life. Wow. Um, so it was this sort of combination of being unsuccessful, but also realizing like what I would have to sacrifice to do the tenure track life was not, that I was willing to say no, um, and at the same time I ended up—so not at the same time. This was like probably two or three weeks, but it was a very compressed timeline. I got an offer to uh, be the assistant director of a scholarships and fellowships program that I had worked in as a graduate student, and it was just this point of like, and my my VAP had been non-renewed. Um, then I was back in the space of like, I have literally no idea what I'm going to do in two or three months. And I, I wish we would talk more about the prolonged stress and trauma of spending years, you know, getting up to the line of like, I don't know how I'm going to pay next month's rent or bills. Mm-hmm. And like
0: mm-hmm. What
1: what trying to make like very sophisticated theoretical arguments and obscure obscure journals while also like i don't know how to how i can feed my family like trying to Mm -hmm. navigate those things i wish there were more conversations about that and you know like now i know because it's
0: happening everywhere sorry yeah (laughs)
1: yeah and yeah and that's literally what i was going to say is now i know that this experience of having periods of unemployment or underemployment is in fact very common but at the time I did not know that because I had Mm -hmm. I had not personally known anyone who had talked publicly about having had that experience. And I, you know, all the first gen and imposter stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, it's true. I just never did belong here and I was never good enough. And that, you know, like that was not. That was not true, but it was it was how I interpreted this being unsuccessful on the tenure track market thing that happened. And that happens to tons of people who are extremely qualified and totally deserve to be here.
0: Wow. So it sounds like this journey um, might have really pushed you hard into learning very quickly about how to take care of yourself. I don't know. Tell me where I'm wrong. Because self-care seems to be such a big piece for you now. Um, And I wonder if this career journey really really uh, taught you that lesson the the hard way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'd like for the answer to be yes, but it was, I I don't think it was. So what it really pushed me to do, so I I took this fellowships position, but I was still continuing to do all the things, publishing all the things. I was teaching for no pay just to be able to continue. So on top of this full-time job, I was teaching courses for no pay to be able to you know, keep my, my toe in the, in the pool of potentially moving back onto the faculty track. Um, Wow. And I'd like there to be some nice career story, but uh, it's not. I I had uh, uh, a dog who passed away at the beginning of the pandemic who uh, would just walk outside in the sunshine and just stop and, and just stop and look up at the sun. And that, like my dog taught me is, is ridiculous or cliche or whatever the case may be just Mm. to like, I would watch her watching a leaf fall and be like so entranced by watching this leaf falling. And I would just stand Mm -hmm. there and do it with her. And that, that is how I learned to slow down and, and take care of myself is watching this little red furry puppy do that.
0: Oh, that is so real. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know we're out of time. Is there something you want to leave us with? Um, in the end of our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
1: I think that piece of recognizing how hard self care is. Like we all say, oh, you should in self care, blah blah blah, and we all know it. And it actually is is very challenging to do because for many of us, we are not in spaces where there is a culture of self-care. And so we are often trying to learn to do that work or to continue to do that work in isolation. And I think trying to connect with other people who are also saying, yes, my work matters, yes, professional productivity matters, etc." but also taking care of myself, being well, doing the work that I find most meaningful is is equally important and finding spaces where we're in community with other people who are doing that and you know what the self-care and meaningful work looks like can look very different for all of us but showing up in spaces where other people are supporting us and connecting with that and where we can support other people in doing that I think is is a really helpful strategy and you know especially important is that in this point of the pandemic is we're about to go through another sea change where we're coming out of, you know, prolonged periods of quarantine in the U.S. and many other places and adapting to this, you know, new situation that also in many ways still feels uncertain and and showing up in ways that give ourselves space to be humans who are surviving a pandemic, I think is, is important.
0: What a great way to end. If people want to reach out to you, if they are interested in having more of a conversation, if they're interested in your coaching, or any of uh, the trainings that you do, um, tell us a little bit about how they can reach you. Yeah,
1: so I'm at brandysimula.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I write a lot for Inside Higher Ed. I'm really committed to not just providing you know advice and services through coaching, but also putting it out there into the world where people can access what I see as <laughs> as my little niche of knowledge and wisdom um, in really accessible ways. So I write a lot for inside higher ed. I encourage folks to to read things there if they're interested in flourishing and thinking about career exploration, et cetera.
0: I love it. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you so so much. It was so much fun to talk to you. Yeah, my pleasure, Danielle. Thanks for the
1: conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle S.C. Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.